Thanks for the great music. It's good to see everybody this morning. How's everyone doing? Good? Yeah, great. I can see it right now. All righty. Recently, I met with a uh, friend who was going through some difficult times, both at home and at work. And uh, after it seemed like he was finished pouring out his heart, I asked him this question. I said, if you could have anything that you wanted, if you could have anything that you wanted, what would it be? He thought for a couple of moments, and with all seriousness, he said, you know, if I could have anything that I wanted more than anything in life, I just want to be happy. I just want to be happy. You know, we did that marriage series, and I spoke to many couples, and, and those of you who are struggling in your marriages and other areas of life, and, you know, and I heard that over and over again. You know, if I could have anything in my life, you know, more than anything what I'd like is I'd just like to be happy. Or I'd just like to be happy again. I'd like it to be the way it used to be. You know, and I talk to people on a regular basis. I just want to have a happy marriage. I just want to have a happy family. I just want to have a happy job. You know, I want to have a job like it used to be, you know, in the, in the, in the, you know, in the, in the booming late 70s and, you know, before the recession and before downsizing and before all these things took place. I, I, yeah, that's what I'd like. I just like to be happy again. I like to be happy in my job. I like to be happy in my marriage. I like to be happy in my family. I like to be happy at church. I like to be happy in school. We talk to students. I just want to be happy again. I want to be happy on the athletic field. You know, you got guys who play sports and they're just not enjoying it and they just want to enjoy it. I just want to be happy again. You know, and the more I heard that answer, the more I began to realize that, you know what? We're not really looking for happiness at all. What we're really searching for is joy. Because, see, happiness is an emotion and happiness is a roller coaster ride. And, uh, you know, if you go to, I mean, all you got to do is go to a movie. Watch a movie, you know, go, in one moment you're happy, in the next minute, you know, and if, you, if you're taking your wife to see a movie that she wants to see, <laughs> the, the, the next moment, you know, someone's crying somewhere, you know, and it's kind of like, you know, you're happy and then you're crying, and you're happy and then you're sad, and, you know, for the guys, it's kind of like, you know, you're happy and you're kind of going like, give it the yawn, you know, oh, yeah, the yawn, I sort of what? There you go, you know, it's kind of like, you know, and, and you go through this roller coaster ride, and it's all in 90 minutes. Go to a sporting event. Oh, man, you're happy. You know, your pitcher just struck someone out. Oh, you're happy. And that same pitcher throws the next pitch. is jacked up over the fence. It's a home run. Now you're sad again. You know, it's like you can go through this roller coaster ride of happiness, and it, and it just is up and down. And the thing that I began to realize is that, you know what? People aren't really looking for happiness in life. What they're looking for is joy. See, on the other hand, joy is a constant state of well-being. Joy is a state of inner satisfaction, knowing that everything's okay because God is in control. See, it's a big difference between happiness and joy. And we've been learning a lot about joy. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Philippians, which is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this group of people in a city called Philippi, which uh, this group of people founded this church. And Paul was instrumental in, in being used by God to help found this particular church. And he writes this letter, which is basically a letter that focuses on joy, not to be confused with happiness, but on joy of having an inner sense of well-being, that everything's going to be okay. And in this particular letter we've been reading, we find in verse 1 through 11, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to start there in verse 1. We read this and we learn a lot about joy, and we're going to talk some more as we go throughout the series. All of, all of this whole book focuses on joy. This whole letter is a focal point on joy. And he says, Paul and Timothy, who are bondservants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ, who are at Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. He says, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. It says, For God is my witness how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and to the praise of God. As Paul addresses them in this opening and this introduction to his letter, he reminds them of, of why he is joyful in his life. 
not happy, but why he has joy. Why he has an inner, an inner sense of satisfaction and well-being, know that, you know what, everything's okay, God's in control. The first thing that he says, and first and foremost for every one of us, if you're looking for joy in life, it begins with the right relationship with God. He says that he found joy in his relationship with God. He said, as you look, he says, you know, the grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is writing to these people and saying, you know what, you too have entered into a relationship with God and because you've done that by believing in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that grace precedes peace from the standpoint that God offers us a gift. And that gift is that you can find joy in your life, you can find an inner sense of satisfaction and well-being by knowing that God is in control, that everything's okay, and you come into a relationship with God. See, Paul, Paul's joy began when he said, I believe what God says about the person and the work of Christ. I believe that God offered him as our gift to die for my sins on the cross, that he rose again and he conquered death and he conquered sin. And because of that, and if I believe that, then I become a child of God to those who believe in his name. And that joy is founded in that relationship. He's saying that God offers a gift, grace is extended, here's God's gift to you, you have a choice of whether you want to receive that gift or reject it. Joy is a choice. You receive the gift, God says that you now have a relationship with God, and you have joy and also peace through Jesus Christ, peace with God. He goes on to say that not only is my joy in this relationship with God, knowing that everything's okay with me and God now because of what Christ did, but I have joy in my relationship with other people as I think back on my experiences at Philippi with these people. He's saying, man, you know what, I've got good memories. I've got great memories. I see what God is doing in the lives of the people that are there. And 10 years later, that God is still actively working in their life. I've got great joy. I've got great memories. I'm focusing on the good things of my past and not on the negative things. He goes on to say the third thing is that, you know what? I also found joy knowing God's in control. He said, man, I look back and I got arrested and I was persecuted and I was beaten and I was thrown in jail. And you know what? As I look back on it, I saw that was all part of God's plan. As crazy as it may sound to some of us, it's part of God's plan that we experience suffering in our life because the greater purpose in God is that he uses those things for his glory and for his purposes. And his greatest purpose is that men and women would come to understand the gift that he's offering in Jesus Christ and would accept that gift. He says, as I look back, man, it was great. I knew that God was in control the whole time. So I have an inner sense of satisfaction because of that. He went on to say this, though. He said, also, I have joy in my life because of this growing love for that I, ha I have for the people in Philippi. He says, ten years later, I'm still looking back with fond memories, and we still have an ongoing relationship. You are meeting my needs. I'm in prison, and you're sending people with gifts to meet my needs, to take care of my physical well-being. And not only that, but I'm developing my relationship with you, though we're separated from, by distance, and the fact that I constantly pray for you. Man, I thought, you know what, there are many people in our life who come and go, but I can think of people in our own lives that over the course of the last 10 to 15 years that we've become very close to, though now we're separated by thousands of miles in many occasions. But you know, when we get together, we almost pick up just where we left off because that relationship is ongoing. We have a relationship that goes beyond just geographic boundaries. It goes even further than that and that we have a love for them. They're in our heart. We pray for them. They pray for us. We talk, about, we talk to each other. We meet each other's needs as those needs ar arise. And so what he's saying is that I'm developing this relationship even though we're separated by distance and that I'm praying for you. And he found joy in praying for other people. He found joy in being able to go to the throne of grace and pray for the needs of the people at Philippi. You know, and I'm wondering sometimes as we think about how we're always looking for happiness in life, how if we took the time to pray for others, how we would find the joy that we're really looking for, not to be confused with happiness. Many of us don't have any joy because we've never learned how to pray for other people. Or we don't see the value in prayer, we don't understand prayer. And so as a result, we don't do it. And so what we're going to develop as he goes through these next couple of verses is he's going to develop four reasons or four things to pray for as we pray for others that will develop the joy in our own lives. And as I think about this, you know, one of the things that we need to understand in verse 9 through 11, there's four things that he's going to pray. And I think it's important to understand the background here because for some of us, you know, we haven't learned or we don't understand what prayer is all about in, in many instances. And so what I want to do is kind of share a couple of things with you. In the Old Testament, the high priest wore a garment. And the garment that he wore was an ephod, which basically was a vest that came over his shoulders and it was, it was sleeveless, but he had this vest that would come over him. And this particular vest was used anytime the priest would go into the temple to perform religious ceremonies or his religious duties. 
Well, in the middle of the vest, or basically right over the, the priest's chest, was a piece of leather. Over this particular garment was a piece of leather that was nine inches square, nine inches by nine inches. And basically, it looked like a tic-tac-toe board, but it had more than just a typical tic-tac-toe board. There was three rows across and four rows down. And so it had three, six, nine, twelve little pouches that was all in this one leather pouch or this one leather uh, kind of a instrument that was there. And in each one of those pouches was a stone. It was a jewel. And the jewel represented, each one represented one of the sons of Jacob or as they're also known as one of the tribes of Israel. And so when the priest would put on this garment and they would put this breastplate or this breastpiece over his heart, what he was saying was, as he went into the Holy of Holies, or the presence of God, he was taking the people of God with him in the presence of his heart. He was to represent them before God. And so Paul, being familiar with this, and maybe even some of his readers familiar with this, was saying to them, in essence, symbolically, you know what? I am taking you into the presence of God with me as I approach the throne of grace boldly and with confidence, because now, listen to this, there is no longer a need, and there is no longer a need for a priest. See, the role of the priest was to be symbolic of what Jesus would do, and Jesus would come as our great high priest who would be able to enter the presence of God. And so the role of the priesthood was no longer necessary because the Bible says if you believe in Jesus Christ, that you become a priest, you're, you're a royal priesthood, a chosen nation, a chosen people, that you fulfill that in essence because Jesus is our great high priest, the Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's who? Jesus Christ. And so now we have access. In fact, look, look with me in the book of Hebrews. Turn back a couple of books and understand the significance of this. In the book of Hebrews, in verse, chapter 4, verse 14 through 16, we see what Paul is trying to tell them symbolically and what Jesus has done for us. In Hebrews 4, listen to verse 14 through 16, we read this. Since then we do have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in all things as we are and yet has not sinned. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help us in the time of need. What he was saying to them and what brought a joy to his face was that, you know what, remember how the priest used to go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and he would wear this garment and he would carry the people of God over his chest, that there would be a great affection for them. He goes, now we can go directly because of what Jesus did. You and I can pray directly to God and we can approach him confidently, as it says, and even with boldness, because we have a relationship with him now through Jesus Christ. The Bible says that as we believe in Christ, we become a child of God, that God our Father becomes our Father. As a disciple says, I don't know how to pray. Jesus said, pray this way, our Father who art in heaven. He's saying you have an intimate relationship with him now. You can go directly to him. You don't have to go through somebody else, pass him a note. It's like kids in school that, hey, you know, take this note to tell this person that I like him or her. Well, you don't have to do that anymore. You can cut out the middle person. You just go direct. And what Paul was saying was, I go confidently before the throne of grace, and I'm praying for you. And the reason I'm praying for you is because I love you, and I want what's best for you, and I want what God has planned for you. And so many of us think that, you know what, somehow we are inadequate to pray for the needs of others. We may not know fully what we should be praying, but I do know this. If you have a relationship with God, God cares what you have to say, and he wants to hear you. And so Paul, the joy in his life increased because he saw God answering prayer in the lives of others. And here's what he prayed for. Four things. We started to look at last week. Go back to Philippians and uh, look and see the four things that he prayed for. And it's critical because there are four things that I think that we should be praying or incorporating even in our prayer life. In Philippians 1, he prays this. He says, and this is what I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment. The first thing that he prayed, we discussed in some detail last time, was that he prayed for an abundance of love. Some of us don't know what to pray for. He says, well, here's what I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you would love people. And I'm praying that you would love people even more than you love people now. 
because you're already loving people. I know that because you're meeting my needs, and so you're loving me, and I know that you love me, but I want you to love other people too. I want you to love people that you never thought you could love before. I want your love to extend more and more or to abound more and more, even beyond the boundaries that you're currently uh, loving others. He says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. But he says that I don't want your love to be naive, and I don't want your love to be gullible and foolish, and I don't want your love to be the kind of love that other people make you feel like you have to love them because that's the guilt trip that they're laying on you. If you don't do this for me, you don't really love me. He says, that's not it at all. What he's saying is basically two things are guidelines. He says, number one, that as we love others, it has to be guided by what? Real knowledge. Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Basically, what he's saying in simple terms is this. If I am going to demonstrate love for another person, it has to be based on real knowledge. Real knowledge is based on who God is. If I'm going to love you in a way that's right before God, he says, you know what, Chuck, you need to do? You need to understand what I say is right or wrong about what you call love. You need to understand a love from my perspective, not from what you hear or from what your culture says or from a, what a movie or a book or television show says love is. You need to understand love for what I'm saying love is. So he's saying that's what real knowledge is all about. See, genuine love does not violate this knowledge. Let me give you an example. Turn back a couple books to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You say, well, you know what? What is real love? What is genuine love? Well, this is God's love, and it doesn't get any simpler than this. This is an example of it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says this. This is love. What? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love isn't jealous. Love doesn't brag. Love isn't arrogant. Love doesn't act unbecomingly. It doesn't pout when it doesn't get its own way. Love doesn't seek its own, is not provoked, it doesn't take into account a wrong that's suffered, doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. God's love never fails. So for some of us who are confused and say, well, what is, real, what is God's knowledge as far as what love is all about? Here's a great illustration of it. So what he's saying is, is as I express my love to others, it cannot violate what God says is true of love. If I say I love you, but I'm impatient, that's not love at all. If I say, if you don't do this for me, you don't really love me, well, that's not love either because God says that God's love doesn't, it doesn't seek its own. How many times do you hear people say, well, if you love me, you'll do this? Well, you know what? Not necessarily because, see, what you're saying is love isn't love at all because you're saying, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. That's not love. That's, a, you know, that, that's reciprocity. That's, that's doing what another person does and you do it and you owe them. It's the marker system. Okay, you did something good for me, now I'll do something good for you. That's not love at all. And so he goes on to say, but you know what? This is the problem. Genuine love is guided by real knowledge. You know, genuine love doesn't lie, cheat, or steal for another person. Genuine love doesn't engage in sexual activity outside of marriage because God says that's not love at all, that that's lust. And to know the difference between the two. It doesn't allow others to continue in destructive behavior like we talked about. You know, oftentimes many of us have in our families people who are struggling with different things. For maybe it's you, maybe it's a person with an alcohol addiction or a drug addiction or someone that's lazy and doesn't want to go to work for a living. Somebody that's mismanaged their finances and they come to you and say, Mom, Dad, Grandpa, Grandma, you know, brother, sister, whoever, hey, you know what, you got to bail me out. And if you don't bail me out, you don't really love me. What kind of Christian are you if you don't love me like I want to be loved? He says, I'm a Christian that's guided by real knowledge of what God says I should do and shouldn't do. It's not a matter of what I even want to. Sometimes I want to do things that aren't right, and because of that, i got to do what God says. And that's the tiebreaker. Many times it's easier just to bail somebody out than it is to deal with the root problem of what they're going through. Here's a couple of bucks. Now get out of my face. Go away. You know, call again in six more months or whatever. And we go through this type of thing, and it says that's not love at all. You know, what's interesting to me as I've gone through this is... It's not, I see Christian ministries that violate God's principle here of loving, abounding love in, in real knowledge. And you say, well, how can that be possible? I, I've seen Christian ministries because they want to love people and reach out to people that they violate God's principles in order to do so. You say, what are you talking about? I'll give you an example. I was back in a university. I spoke at a college in the Midwest. And this particular Christian college that wanted to love people and reach people for, for the gospel of Christ violated every biblical principle that I can think of of how they ran their university from a financial standpoint. And now I'm just a guest, and I was just asked to speak, but I wasn't getting paid anything, so I figured I didn't have anything to risk. 
<laughs> and, and not only that, but I spoke like seven times in eight hours, and I was worn out by the end of all of it. And so we had a meeting with the president, and I asked him a question. I said, uh, let me ask you this. Isn't it kind of strange to you that your university would operate in a deficit spending mode when God's principles of finance are so very clear? And this is what he said. He said, you know what? I've really struggled with that. He goes, I believe that God's principles for finance are true and I try to live it in my personal life, but I haven't been able to step out in faith and do it on this big a scale. I said, what? You see what he's saying? He's saying that every year, because they wanted to reach more and more kids with the Christian message, that they were bringing more and more students onto their campus and every year their deficit ran higher and higher. So what they tried to do every year was find one big donor that was ready to check out and say, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing to come up with a million dollars to give to this university for all the good work that we're doing for the cause of Christ? You just shake your head. What in the world? Well, we see churches do it all the time. We see them do it with building programs. We see them go into debt and borrow money for the purpose of what? So we can reach more people and bring more people in so we can tell them about Jesus and tell them about biblical principles and explain to them how biblical principles will change their life. But the only thing we're not going to talk about is finances because that's the one area that we're not doing anything right in. But we're going to tell them about how God loves them and they need to believe in Jesus and we'll violate every other principle that has to do with anything in order to give them that message. Man, we're lunatics sometimes. You know, when you look at this and you go, what in the world? I remember a gal a few years ago, her name, she called herself Robin Hood. She worked for the Department of Housing and Urban Development. <laughs> Do you remember this gal? This is a true story. She worked for the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and she would steal from the, from the funds of the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and she would say she was giving the money to the poor. That was after she took her finder's fee, of course. But she was passing that money along to the poor. And she said it was all in the name of reaching people and loving people and, and, and meeting the needs of people. And you sit there and you laugh and you go, man, are we that, I mean, we're, we're so gullible and naive at times. Paul's saying, I'm praying that you, your love would abound more and more, but that you do it in a way that's pleasing to God. That it would be according to real knowledge of what God says is right or wrong. You wouldn't violate biblical principles in order to accomplish something you think is greater than God's principles. That you would do it within the context of what God says is right and wrong. And that's where he also said, and in depth of insight or discernment. It means to distinguish between the two. Christian love isn't blind. The heart and mind that work together so that we have discerning love and also at the same time loving discernment. It's discernment that helps us to distinguish the things that differ. Let me give you an example. It's this discernment that helps you be, distinguish between a person who's a liar, who's a cheat, who's a schemer, who's a manipulator, Versus the person that has a genuine need. It's loving discernment that helps you to see a person that has a sign up that says, I will work for food, and discern whether or not they don't have any intention of working for food versus the person that needs a break because they've just lost their job because of corporate downsizing. They've just lost their job because of health problems in their family. They've lost their job for other reasons that had nothing to do with their, their laziness or, or, or uh, their rebellious spirit at work or whatever. These are people that just are going through a hard time and they need help. They need compassion. They need encouragement. Loving discernment helps you teach, that, that'll teach us between the two. We need that because we live in a world that, frankly, you know what, we, there's more and more schemers, there's more and more manipulators, there's more and more people that, that really don't want help. They want what you have to give them. That's it. And we need that discernment. Loving, abounding, you know, a loving, abounding love that's guided by real knowledge and discernment. Let me give you some reasons in my life and experiences with people that I believe it's important that we understand how important this is. <clears throat> Number one. If you improperly express love to others, you can interfere with God's discipline and God's plan for that person's life. If you improperly express love to others, a love that's not guided by real knowledge and discernment, you can interfere with God's discipline and God's purpose and plan for another person's life. You say, what are you talking about? You know what? Some of us need to be flat out broken before we'll ever consider whether there's a God in heaven or not. 
Some of us just need punched upside our head by the difficulties of life before God will ever have us in a position where we can look up and start to ask the important questions in life. You've got family members and friends, and so do I, that I know exactly that's the truth. And I can interfere with that if I come in alongside and say, you know what, here, let me give you more money so you can keep doing your drugs. Let me give you more money so you can keep on being an alcoholic. Let me give you more money so you can pay your rent for the 15th time in the last 12 months because you don't like to show up for work on time. Let me bail you out and because, see, I feel guilty because I don't really know what Christian love is all about and I know I'm a Christian I'm supposed to love people and so I'm just going to love you anyway. And God says, that's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to love people with real knowledge and also discernment. Can you see that I'm trying to work in this person's life? Would you please step aside and let me do what I need to do? The second thing is improper expression of love is also poor stewardship or poor management of the resources that God has blessed us with. I don't know if you figured this out yet, but you have limited resources in a world with unlimited, quote, needs. Have you figured that out yet? If you gave your money to every person who said that they needed money, you'd be broke by the end of the day. And you couldn't give away enough money. You drove down the street and you gave money to every person that says that they'd work for food even though they won't. Every person that comes along with the hard luck story, you did that and you began to do that, you'd have nothing left by the end of the day. And you know what? And God wouldn't say, wow, that was really wonderful of you. You know what he'd say? You're a foolish person. What are you doing giving away the resources that I've given you so foolishly? Your love is supposed to be guided by real knowledge and discernment. We don't want to hear stuff like that. We just want to take the easy way out. See, we also need to understand, you know, and here's the third reason that I believe it's important. Improper expression of love will also eventually lead us to becoming insensitive, to becoming callous, to becoming indifferent, and even bitter towards those who have legitimate needs, people that God brings in our life and that he wants us to help meet their needs because he wants us to demonstrate what Christian love is all about. And if you get burned enough by people in your life who are just using you and manipulating you, what will happen is you're not going to recognize legitimate needs when they come into your face. God brings a person into your life and say, I'm not helping anybody anymore. I'm sick of being burned. I'm tired of it. He's saying, don't you understand? You need to pray for discernment, that you can tell the difference and you help those that you can help. You know, the ability, the ability to distinguish is a, is a sign of maturity. I don't know if you understand this or not. You know, it's like when you have a child, everything with four legs is a bow-wow, right? I mean, bow-wow. You see a cat, bow-wow. See a horse, bow-wow. See a dog, bow-wow. You know, and, and, and the ability to distinguish the difference is a sign of maturity. All of a sudden, a child says, that's not a bow-wow, that's a kitty or whatever. That's a horse. That's a giraffe. That's an elephant. It's not a bow-wow anymore. You, take a, you know, take, take a person that doesn't know much about cars. That's a car. I've never been really big on cars. I don't have a clue what a car. It's a car. You get in, you drive it. You know, but you ask a teenager what a car is. Oh, man. It's like, it's like watching a guy at home improvement, Tim Allen. Oh, that's a car. That's not a car. Oh, that's a this, that, and the other thing with this, that, and that going inside it. And it's got this, that, and the other, and it's all going this way and that way. And it's going, what? It's a car. No, it's not. It's, man, it's this. And you begin to realize, you know what? Uh, we need to be able to discern the difference between the two. I don't know if you know this or not, but it's a really important to apply that to your life. The second thing that he prayed for is this. He prayed for an approval of excellent things. What else should we pray for? Here's what he says in verse 10. So that you may be able to discern what is best, the New American Standard and the King James says, so that you may be able to approve that which is excellent to approve that which is excellent. Say, so what in the world is he talking about? It's really important to understand what he's saying here. If you're going to pray for others, pray. Listen to me, especially parents. You know, we've got children that are growing up in a world that's a very difficult world, to say the least. And we're praying for very specific things. And I think that what we need to pray for more than anything is what Paul's saying to pray for here. He's saying to pray for an approval of excellent things. You know what it means to approve something? So first of all, that's our responsibility. The responsibility is to approve. The word means to test. It was used to test certain metals. Give you an illustration. Old, old movies, old westerns. You watch those movies, and you find somebody who goes nuts when they find what they think is gold. 
And they get all this bag of gold, and they take it into town, and they take it to the guy, and he looks at it, and he starts to laugh. This guy's all excited because he finds this big vein of gold, and he takes it into town, and the guy starts to laugh. Why is he laughing? Because it's not gold, right? What is it? Fool's gold. So this is fool's gold. He says, what do you mean? Well, it fooled you. You thought it was gold. It was counterfeit. It's not real. It's not authentic. It's kind of like the thing that's going on in our country with $100 bills. Anywhere you go, if you have a $100 bill, you give it to them, the first thing that they do is what? They approve it. They need a manager to come over. Will you approve this? What is he talking about? Is this legitimate or not? Is it genuine or is it counterfeit? Is it authentic or is it phony? And they have little tests that they give to find out whether the thing's real or not. When I was a kid growing up in Pennsylvania, my grandmother lived with, out in the sticks, and we used to like to go out there for vacations or whatever and just kind of get away from, you know, the sticks where we lived. And uh, <laughs> so we'd go out, and they had this little general store. And uh, when we would go to buy something at the store, this was in the old days where they had like a scale, and then on the scale you'd ask for, I want, you know, I want a pound of a certain type of, of uh, lunch meat or whatever. I want a pound of salami. They would, they would, take, a, they would take what? They would take a weight that was one pound, and they would put it on this side, and then they would have this scale, and it would be like this, and they had this arms on it, and there was a pound here, and this would go up, and the butcher would keep putting meat on it until it went like this. And what, what, what was he doing was he was approving, he was authenticating that he sold us one pound of meat based on the standard that he was using, which was a one-pound weight. Now, I don't know if you understand or realize this, but that happens in every area of life. Now they've got computerized ones and digital, digital ones, but gas stations do the same thing. There's a Bureau of Weights and Measure in our country and all over the world that determines that something is an authentic standard. It's the original. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying, you know, we need to prove for the approval of excellent things. We, we, we need to be able to tell the difference between that which is real and that which is phony, between that which is counterfeit and that which is genuine. And there's an original standard that we go to. It deals with the recognition also of what is excellent. Look what he says. So you may be able to approve or discern what is excellent or what is best. The word excellent has to do with passing that particular test. So now let's put it all together. We're to pray for others that we and they would learn how to weigh their actions against what God says is right and wrong. And then to do the right thing. And when that happens, I'm telling you what, your joy will increase. Your capacity for joy will increase. As a parent, wouldn't, you, wouldn't your joy increase if your children understood the difference between right and wrong and that they would choose to do that which is right? Give me an illustration. Our son plays on a high school baseball team. Some of his, some of his fellow athletes are sitting with him. So I want to be real careful how I say this, but I want you to understand something that, that is important. They were playing a baseball game a couple days ago, and they blew a lead and ended up losing the game. And as they were walking off the field and they were walking toward the buses, the opposing team came over to one of the guys who were on the team and started to get in his face and started to talk about his sister and started to talk about some other things. And I don't know if he got into talking about his mom or anything, but I knew he was talking specifically about his sister. And he was kind of right in his face, and he was trying to bait him into a fight. And a couple of the other guys came over, and it was getting a little heated, and some of the dads, we finally walked up and tried to separate them and go different ways. And, and, and the lesson of all of it, and the point that needs to be made here, is that we need to recognize that when we are in life in different situations, we need to be able to weigh our actions or our potential actions not against what other people think, not against what other people would say, not against what other people would do, but that we would approve that which is excellent, which means this. It goes back to, what would God have me do at this point in time? Where in the Bible, which is the, the original proof text that we go to, where in the Bible does it say, if somebody calls my sister a name, that I'm to punch them out? See, where in the Bible does it say, if somebody makes fun of me, I'm going to go get a gun or a knife and go back and waste them. See, where in the Bible does it say if a principal comes and asks me what happened, but I want to stick up for my friend, that I should lie to him and make up some story or say I didn't see anything or I don't know anything? Where does the Bible say? What does God expect me to do at this particular time? Is it hard to tell the truth in that situation? Absolutely. But is it the right thing to do? Yes. You know why? Because it's being approved against what God says is right or wrong. 
See, where does the, what does God have to say about my relationship and my dating relationship with another person? What does the Bible have to say about our building fund and how we should finance it? What does the Bible have to say about our college, our university, and how we should manage its finances? What does the Bible have to say about whether I should lie, cheat, or steal in this situation? What does God have to say? See, it's important that we get back to the fact that we believe that there is right or wrong because it's God who determines what is right or wrong. It doesn't make any difference what someone else would say. Well, if someone said that about my sister, man, I would have punched them out. Oh, who cares what you would have done? Who cares what you have to say? Is it right or is it wrong? And how do we test it? We test it against what God says. That's an approval of excellent things. Who cares whether somebody says, you know what? Well, we're going to get married in six months anyway, and we should, oh, that's okay if we're having sex. Who cares what somebody else is doing? Who cares what somebody else says? Who cares whether a school board says it's not realistic to teach kids about abstinence or not? Who cares? The only thing that we need to care about in life is what God says is true. See, you want to pray for your kids? You want joy to increase in your life? You start teaching them what God says about life. This is what God says. I'll give you an example. A parent told me once that they came home and they caught, her, they caught their 15-year-old daughter in bed having sex with her, with his girl, her girl boyfriend. <laughs> but could have been that too. Could have been anything. But the point is this. You know, and, and as they started to talk to this 15-year-old daughter, here's what she said. Well, they said, don't you know how wrong that is? You know what she said? It's not wrong. So what do you mean it's not wrong? It says, well, we love each other. And here's a typical parent of the 90s as they address the problem. Well, you know that it's wrong. And this is what she said. Why is it wrong? And you know what the parent said? Now forgive me if you've given this answer, but I'm going to tell you right now. It's the dumbest answer that any person could give to another human being. Does anybody know what it is? Because! Why is it wrong, Daddy? Because! Because. Why? Because. What are you going to tell your son or daughter? Hey, you know what? It's not right to tell dirty jokes. It's not right to tell dirty stories. It's not right to use that kind of language. It's not right to get drunk and get on the bus before your school goes to the L.A. Zoo for a field trip. It's not right to do drugs. It's not right. It's not right. It's not right. You know what they're going to say? Why isn't it right? Don't say, duh, because. You know why it's not right? Because God says it's not right. There'll be no filthy mouth. There'll be no filthy jesting. There'll be no coarse jokes. Ephesians chapter 4, read it. There'll be no lying. There'll be no cheating. There'll be no stealing. If you find something, guess what? Return it to somebody. You say, hey, now isn't there a Bible a verse somewhere in the Bible says finders, keepers, losers, weepers? No. I love this. There's a kid that found $700 in the bushes. Garden Grove. He just found out that they were going to repo his car. He couldn't make its last payment, and he finds $700. But you know what he did with the money? Instead of paying his bill, he went to the police station, handed over to the detective, Dale Walker. He said, I figured, this, this young man saying, I figured you can always buy another car, but you can't always buy another conscience. So I gave it back, and he told me, the detective told me I was doing the right thing. I told him it didn't feel like it right now. <laughs> he says, but deep down, I knew that it was the right thing to do. Why is it the right thing to do? Because God says it's right. Why is chastity moral and promiscuity immoral? Because God is pure. Why is honesty right and deceit wrong? Because God is true. Why is there such things as fair and unfair? Because God is a just God. I mean, you go down through this and you begin to realize why is love a virtue and hatred a vice? It's because the God who made us is a God of love. 
You know, we need, to be, we need to get back to some basics here, folks. It doesn't matter what your opinion is as a parent. It doesn't matter what your opinion is as a teacher or an educator or a coach or anything else. It doesn't matter what our opinions are to one another. The only thing that really matters is, is that we pray for an approval of excellent things, that we know the difference between right or wrong, and we can get back to that as a standard for our basis of operating. Otherwise, we're in nothing but trouble in this country. Nothing but trouble. The Apostle Paul knew it, and he recognized it. And you know what he said? And look at this. He also prayed for an absence of hypocrisy. He says, you know why it's important to know the difference between right or wrong? So that you may be able to discern or approve what is excellent, so that you may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. You see what he's saying? He's saying that you may be pure and blameless, that you would be sincere. If you want to pray for something, pray for this, that there is no hypocrisy in the life of other believers. That there's no hypocrisy in the life of your children. That they're not here playing church with you on Sunday and they're not living like hell during the week and they're playing a game. That what you see is what you get. The greatest compliment any Christian could get is a person that says, you see that person? What you see is what you get. On Sunday mornings, on Sunday afternoons, on Monday at a job site, or Monday at the office, on Wednesday afternoon on the ball field, on Saturday at the movies, whatever you see is what you get and that's real stuff. There's nothing that will rob our capacity for joy more than living a hypocritical lifestyle. We're not talking about playing church here. We're talking about a real relationship with God that's sincere. And the word sincere means without wax. And you know what without wax referred to? When the Roman Empire destroyed the Greeks, they destroyed all of their artwork, and then when they got wise and realized how valuable it was, they went back and tried to fix it. They would take statues and vases and other works of art and they would put them together, the pieces of pottery or the statues, and they would fill them with wax. They would melt wax and they would fill it and then they would try to touch it up with paint and then they would present it and sell it as an original that had no blemishes at all. So when an art dealer went to buy a piece of art, what they would do is they would take this vase or take a statue, they would go outside into the sunlight, they would hold it up to the light, and they would wait there, and on a hot enough day, it didn't take very long, and where there was wax, it started to melt and it started to drip. And they would go back in and say, you are a hypocrite. You told me one thing, and what it was was something different. And what God is saying to this, that every person that follows Christ would go out into the world, and they would be held up to the light, and that no one can accuse you of being something that you're not. No one can accuse you of being something that you are. That you're a person that is absent of hypocrisy. The greatest compliment that Jesus gave to Nathaniel, he looked over and said, you see that guy, Nathaniel? In him there is no guile. There's no hypocrisy. What you see is what you get. That's what we should all be like. Not hypocrites. Not saying one thing and doing another thing. That we can withstand the test of the light. As God's word is used to test our lifestyle, do we walk a way that we say that we walk? You know, I, I, I don't know, but I'll tell you what. I heard my wife and some friends talking the other day, and, you know, and some, it's amazing how you can hear certain things. But, um, but she was talking about the series that we did, this marriage series. And, and one of the things that I've always, I've always been committed to is that whatever I teach, I've got to apply. That's why I don't teach some things. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> and I heard her say that. She said, well, what he says, he does. And I'll tell you what, she didn't mean it to be a compliment to me, but I heard it in the distance, and I took it as the greatest compliment that my wife could ever give me. The greatest compliment your child can ever give you is, you see my dad? Hey, he's not perfect, but I'll tell you what, he's not what he used to be, and he's doing what God is teaching him and showing him, and every day I'm watching a change in his life. And I'll tell you what, man, that's exciting stuff. But we live in a world that gives off confusing messages. We come and we play church and then we go to work and we go home and we go to our neighborhoods and it's like people look at you and go, what kind of Christian are you? Here's an example. I'm driving down the street a couple minutes and I'll close. I'm driving down the street and I see a personal license plate. And this is what the license plate said. Okay, now, now, now think this through for a second. It, said, it was spelled out S-Y-K-O was the first word. Second was L-D-Y. Okay? Now I read it as either sicko lady but I don't think that was right. I think it said psycho lady, all right? And then underneath the psycho lady was, was, a, was a fish symbol. Now, I don't know. Some of you, uh, some of you think it's funny. Others have fallen asleep. And you, I've lost you 10 minutes ago. But, but when they wake up, share that with them. They may like it. Um, 
but it was psycho lady with a fish symbol underneath. And I think some people look at us and they think that. Psycho Christian. <laughs> Say one thing, do another. They're crazy people. There's no consistency in their life. And look what it says, that we would be sincere and also blameless. You know what the word blameless means? It doesn't mean that we're without sin. Noah was blameless in the sight of the Lord. Job was blameless before God. But the Bible says all of sin and falls short of the glory of God. So there's some, some type of a confusion there. But the word blameless means this. Simply this. My life doesn't cause anybody else to stumble. My life doesn't cause anybody else to stumble. I'm to pray for an absence of hypocrisy in your life that you would be sincere, that you'd be without wax, that what you see is what you get, that when you're held up and examined by the light that you're going to be approved by God, and that you would be blameless and that you wouldn't cause anybody else to stumble by the confused way that you live your life. Think about this, Christian, as, as a young person, as a Christian, and you're dating and you're doing things that are wrong before God, and other friends of yours who don't know the Lord are dating and they know what you're doing, they look at it and say, I guess it's okay to do what I'm doing because you're doing it too. As a Christian in business, I guess it's okay not to pay your bills, you know, because that's the way this business is run. I, read, meet, I meet people all the time in the construction industry. That's just the way that it is. You always string out your payables. That's just the way you have to operate in this business. And we, and we don't do that. And whatever we owe, we owe and we pay first. What's ever left, that's what we're left to deal with. And, and that's fun to deal with in personal budgets and trying to explain that to your wife as you go through finances and stuff. But it's like, you know, because she goes, well, go ask for a raise. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, who should we ask? Um, you know, and, and you kind of go through that, but they say, but you know what? There's something different about the way you conduct yourself. There's nothing hypocritical about it. There's, there, it's, it's like that everywhere across the board. Pray for an absence of hypocrisy. And the, and the last thing is this. Do you ever wonder sometimes whether your, your child or your friend or your spouse even has a relationship with God? Do you ever wonder, man, you know, does this person really even know the Lord? Has this person really ever invited Jesus Christ into his or her life? You know, does my son or daughter really know? Does my husband or wife really know? Do my friends really know? I'll tell you what, I love this, because you know what Paul prayed for? He prayed for an affluence of productivity. He said, you know what I'm praying? That you'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. That there would be evidence in your life that you've come to know the God that you claim to know. When you walk down front at Promise Keepers, when you signed a card at a Christian businessman thing, when you went down front at a church meeting, when you sat in your seat and someone said, if you don't know Jesus, why don't you just ask him into your life right now? And you did all those things or you did any of those things and the people around you are wondering, man, was it real or wasn't it real? Was it emotional or was it sincere and from the heart and God took that as it was and made you into a new person? I'll tell you what, you want your joy, your capacity to joy to increase, then you pray that people around you would begin to demonstrate through their life that they indeed have come to know the God who made them. The fruit of the Spirit. Read it, Galatians 5, 22 through 23. The fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of a changed life is that there be love and peace and joy and gentleness, and kindness, and goodness in that person's life. Where a person had a foul mouth, all of a sudden there's self-control. Where a person was struggling with drugs and alcohol, all of a sudden they're free from that. Though it may be a process, but they're free from it. Though a person liked to tell dirty jokes and watch pornography, all of a sudden they have no taste at all for that anymore. There's self-control in their life. When they drive down the road and someone cut them off, they'd flip them off and they'd go chase them or whatever. When somebody would get in their face and call their sister a name, and they could look and they could walk away. There's self-control in that person's life. You know, I see people all the time that try to give, it, give the credit to other people. Well, he's going to church now, and he's trying to do good now, and he's got the right friends now, and all those are important. And listen to what I'm saying. They're critical and they're important. They're necessary reinforcement. But what I'm saying here is that a sign of a changed life is something that only God could do through you by making you new. Say, yeah, well, that's why he walked away from the fight, because he's afraid to get suspended. He's afraid to get grounded. And I say, no, I don't think that's it at all. I say it's an evidence of the fact that this young man has put his faith and trust in the Lord and now he is living his life through him. The world doesn't want to hear that because we all want to give each other credit for overcoming things in our life. And let me tell you something. The only reason I'm here today is because I asked Christ into my life and he made me into a new person. 
that he's gifted me the way that he has. He's changed my life. All things pass away. All things become new. It's not as anything that I've done on an, in and of myself. We need to understand and pray that there will be evidence in the life of people around us. You know why? It's the fruit of the Spirit. Now, if you've ever walked by a fruit tree, let me tell you the way it works. When was the last time you walked by a fruit tree and you heard a fruit tree trying to grunt out an orange? I'm just asking the questions. You see what I'm saying? This isn't playing church. This isn't going Bible study. This isn't doing any of these things. This is an outworking of God in your life who's making it possible, and it just comes naturally. This isn't, oh, I'm going to have self-control. Oh, I'm going to have self-control. Oh, I'm not going to tell a dirty joke. Oh, I'm not going to watch pornography. Oh, I'm going to be gentle, and I'm going to be kind. This isn't any of that. This is God. Just do what you got to do through me. And that orange starts out green, and it starts out small, but it starts to grow. And there ain't no grunting, and there ain't no moaning, and there ain't no whole bunch of effort. It just happens naturally. See, what we're talking about praying for is for the natural working of God and the life of another person who has put their faith and trust in Christ. And you know why that's so critical? Because God gets all the glory. God gets all the glory. God gets all the praise. I had a young man come up to me and he said, you know what? I am so excited about what God is doing in my dad's life. Now, we may be friends, and God may use me to help bring about growth in another person's life. But you know what? This young man recognized something that we all need to recognize. He didn't come up to me and say, I want to thank you for changing my dad's life. Because I didn't change his dad's life. God changed his dad's life. And we may have been part of it, and we may have been used by God. But when God does it, then God gets all the glory. And man, I'll tell you what. And when God gets all the glory, our joy increases. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time to be together. Just thank you for your word, for the truth of it. God, we just need to learn how to pray for others in a more productive way. We just thank you for this outline that you've given us. God, we thank you for the fact that you're a God who loves people and that you want to offer a gift, a gift of a new life, a gift of forgiveness, a gift of eternal life, a gift that, that is beyond comprehension. It's indescribable, your word tells us, and that it's free that all we have to do is receive it. And if we do, that you tell us we become a child of God to those who believe in your name, that we become born again, that we become a new person, that old things pass away and all things become new, that it starts us fresh with a clean slate. God, I just thank you for that because you say once we receive that, we have peace with you for all of eternity, that we're no longer accountable for our sin, that Jesus paid that price on the cross. And we just thank you for the lives that you change and the evidence of it on a daily basis. And as we see change around us, may we give you all the praise and the glory. And we just thank you that our joy increases because of that. In Christ's name, amen.